Uh, page 117. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they laughing at you, or are they laughing at me? I, I was ignored my first attempt to ask the question. Ignored by me? It's okay. I, it's okay. Do you still need to ask the question after you've uh, Actually, I, that was it. That was it. <laughs> My question was, would you get on your knees? And yeah, okay, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I was wondering, I posted it, but um, the question of, was God too hard on Ezekiel? Uh, do you think that there's an element of, of, actually, God was, he was giving, I mean, he, he told Ezekiel that if Ezekiel is not acting as a watchman, that the blood of the people mm. would be on his own head. Mm. So actually, by having him do things like, you know, lie on his side for 365 days, although, you know, literal or not literal, that, that could actually, even as ridiculous as that would sound, it, it's almost as if God is giving Ezekiel a way out from hmm. the entire nation's hmm. blood on his head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's... Yeah, just a minute. Uh, God wasn't being hard on Ezekiel. God was only threatening to be hard on Ezekiel, right? Uh, and uh, I... I I mean, I would say God actually was a lot less hard on Ezekiel than he was on Jeremiah and a few, one or two other people. Um, but he is, uh, yeah, but he actually, I mean, Jeremiah did have a tough time. Ezekiel doesn't, doesn't give you the impression that he's having a tough time in the way that, um, that, uh, that Jeremiah does. Um, uh, yeah, and yes, I think you're, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, if you guys abandon Christ, then you will go to hell. Or if I do. Um, that's that's a hard that's hard, but I mean that's the other side of the game. It's okay. You you carry on living in trust in Christ, you'll be okay. That's it's um, like you say. It's a, it's an it's an act of mercy to say, okay, this is what you need to go and do, um, in order not to have that terrible thing happen to you. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. I wonder what the answer is. It, where is the attendance sheet? Here it is. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and I, just, I did want to say something about whether God could fly. Um, because I, I, don't, uh, uh, I don't want to give the impression that God can't be in every, uh, anywhere. Is he a physical? Sorry? Is he a physical? Well, that's, a separate, that's another question again. But that God is here now with us. Thank you, Jesus. Um, but, but, but God isn't here because God flew here. Well, he may have done. He may have got the cherubim. But he did, he, God, God can get around without the cherubim, uh, as it were. In, but, but insofar as you think of God as a, a spatial or physical or something kind of person, then, then God is like a human being. God has legs. Uh, and God doesn't have wings. Um, and as I say, I think I need to set to... We need to keep those two uh, notions separate. God can be anywhere... Um, I was just thinking as I was walking up the stairs, it's a bit like, God isn't like Superman, he's more like um, the Star Trek kind of things, when you can, what do you call that? Morph, you, more, not morphing, no, it's um, trans something, transport, it's more like, yeah, that kind of thing, yeah, yeah.
yeah, but if, if God is giving us a false picture of himself, it wouldn't help us. Um, okay, anything else? Can we go? <laughs> uh, let's get into page 117, where it says at the top, prophecy in Christ, prophecy in modern Israel, which isn't so very different from what it says on the schedule page for tonight, how does biblical prophecy apply to modern Israel? Which I talk about in connection with Ezekiel because... Um, uh, there are some of Ezekiel's prophecies, particularly in chapters 38 and 39, the ones that talk about Gog and Magog, uh, are some of the ones that have been uh, used especially in connection with uh, interpreting events that have been going on, events that have been happening particularly in the Middle East in the past 60 years, uh, and um, extrapolating as to events that will take place uh, in the Middle East. Uh, what's going on when people do that? Is it okay? And a basic thing I want to try to get over to you, really, is the point uh, under number one on the sheet. Because um, I think it's quite often the case that when people think about uh, lots and lots of prophecies in the Old Testament, they think of them as a collection of all totally separate, almost random things that God says. Uh, and what I want to point out to you is that they are all part of a bigger picture, um, and that there is some coherence about them, all as expressions of a purpose of God that's been going on from, in effect, the beginning of the story. So, as I put it there, there, is an, there are some overarching promises of God, uh, which um, particularly are expressed in God's first um, undertakings with regard to Abraham. Uh, Abraham uh, is told that God uh, wants him to be a blessing. That doesn't mean he has to do anything, necessarily. Uh, but to be a, he's to be a means of blessing. God will work through him. It's not his, his job to go and do that. It's all, all he has to do, as it were, is be there, and God um, can bring that about. Uh, and in connection with that, God promises to Abraham a land, uh, and God promises that Abraham will become a great nation. Uh, those promises, then, uh, underlie the story that runs from Genesis through uh, into the period of the monarchy whereby uh, Israel comes to possess, comes to be a nation, but, but initially, as I said the other day, I think, um, a nation in the wrong place. Uh, and so God needs to get them to be a nation in the right place. And in the process of doing that, God is blessing them, and you can sometimes see how God is making them a blessing. And that's the ultimate purpose of their being God's people at all, that through them, uh, God should bring blessing to all the nations. When you then get into the David story, you get two more promises added on to those. Uh, there is uh, a promise uh, with regard to uh, David's person and David's successors, and a promise with regard to the temple that David wanted to build. To, to build. Uh, and both of those come uh, in 2 Samuel 7, the account of God making of uh, when David wants to uh, build a temple, um, and God slightly reluctantly agrees, um, but also says that he's going to make a household, uh, a house household for David, which also reflects some reluctance or some hesitation on God's part, we know, in light of what we've been told about the monarchy already in 1 Samuel. Despite then, th there is an ambiguity then attaches, that attaches both to temple and to, the, and to kingship. But God makes some promises uh, with regard to both of those so that they uh, come to be 
alongside the promises of being a blessing and having a land and being a nation. There are promises that go back to the beginning of the story. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that when you read Ezekiel 33 to 38, the chapters about the uh, promises of God, uh, that God that God gives through Ezekiel to the people, at one level, all the only thing you get in Ezekiel 33 to 48 is a restatement of those promises. Or, to put it another way, the reason why God promises those things that God promises in Ezekiel 33 to 48 is that God has already made promises of that kind. They are the promises that lie behind the entire story. And as it were, the only thing, therefore, that God would need or want to do in the context of Ezekiel in speaking about the people's future is to restate the promises that were already the promises that, 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 were, that he was seeking to, to uh, implement uh, in Israel's life uh, in such a way as will bring blessing to the world. Now that already, um, I suggest, casts um, in a different light the attempt to say um, that particular verses in uh, Ezekiel, say, refer to something happening um, in our day in, in their con- kind of concreteness. Uh, one that I always um, remember uh, is from when I was a teenager when um, uh, NASA nationalised, the, the Egyptian uh, president nationalised the Suez Canal and uh, we were told uh, in church that this was a fulfilment of a prophecy uh, it, that does come in Ezekiel about the Pharaoh taking his river unto himself. Um, that's been fulfilled in Nasser taking his river, which has now become the Suez Canal, which was a, it's the Nile in Ezekiel. But don't worry, you never have to too, worry too much about the detail uh, when people make pro- promises, uh, make declarations about prophecies being fulfilled like that. Um, the, um, the, the, in, in this thing going on in 1959 or whatever it was, you have a fulfilment of something that Ezekiel said. Or when uh, in the, um, the book The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsay, uh, you get an understanding of Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, that sees it as portraying a, a Russian blitzkrieg um, on Israel using tactical nuclear weapons, um, then uh, that's a similar approach to uh, understanding the significance of the prophecies, uh, looking at them in light of what has happened, what you have read in the newspapers, or you might read in the newspapers tomorrow, and seeing the detail of what Ezekiel has got to say alongside the things that you have read in the newspapers or might read in the newspapers tomorrow. That, that's a fundamentally different sort of way of looking at why prophecies say the things that they do uh, compared with what I want to suggest to you um, as one that emerges more from the theological nature of the Old Testament as these promises about the future being particular embodiments in contexts of what God's overall purpose means for now. Sometimes I say to people, and they hate me for it, like many things that I say they hate me for, that God does not have a wonderful plan for your life. God is too great a parent to do that. Because no uh, loving parent has a plan for their child's life. Uh, It's a a really horrible thing um, to do. Because what you want is the child to grow and have their own plan for their life and work out their own life. But if you're parents, you would have hopes for their lives and longings and things you're working towards, though, please God, they're not that he may end up as an Old Testament theologian like you. Uh, It's that they may uh, grow up as mature people in Christ and people who want to serve Christ. But you don't have a view about how they'll do that or even what university they ought to go to or what seminary they ought to go to. 
Um, and likewise, God has a wonderful plan for your life in the sense that God wants you to grow to maturity in Christ and is committed to getting you there. So that that terrible thing I said just now about you falling away and going to hell is not part of God's wonderful plan for your life. Say amen. Amen. Um, but God, uh, in that sense, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But God doesn't have a plan for which seminary you should go to or whether you should do the MA or the MDiv. And certainly not for who you're going to marry. Because if you ask God, God says, you've got to live with her, you decide. <laughs> And, and likewise, with par- I mean, when parents have got a plan for who their children should marry, well, they, they, at least they better take into account what the children themselves think. And something is similar true. Tr- something similar is true uh, about God's plan for Israel, which and it's much more inclined to talk about a plan and a purpose of God for the people of God than it is for individuals. God has a big picture intention for Israel's life and for the world's life. But God doesn't have a plan for how that should get implemented. Or if God has, God's used to the fact that every five minutes he's having to change it. Uh, because the, pl- the details of the plan are worked out in, this, in, the inter- in interaction with Israel as part of the relationship with Israel. So that the, the plan is that, they, that the people should be a blessing, should have their land, should become a nation. But how that works out uh, keeps, needs to keep being changed. And what the prophets keep doing is declaring how God is going to uh, implement that plan in, in the light of the latest thing that has happened, which is usually a piece of Israelite rebellion. But God still hasn't given up on the plan. Uh, and it's the continuing restatement of that plan that you have wondrously pictured in, for instance, Ezekiel 33-48. 30, 30, so you would say the, um, the Jeremiah passage that is so often quoted and other plans I have for you, that's, that is more... As it says, you, it's plans for good and not for evil. Yeah. yeah. But it's not necessarily speaking about... So you're arguing that not saying that God necessarily has directed every kind of moment in your life. That's right, yeah. And anyway, that's not talking to individuals, it's talking to the people. I'm sorry? Yeah. <laughs> he just wanted me to wave at him. It wasn't, he didn't... Yeah. Do you want, anything else you want me to do? Jump up now? Okay. Well, I, I think, I'm not sure what you mean. If you, I think that when God makes the promise about household and te- about um, the house of David and about the temple, it's, it's close to being a new promise. That because it's, it's not something that is at all adumbrated or implied in the promise of uh, nation and land and blessing. Uh, and so what I'm saying, that, but what I'm then saying is that when Ezekiel gives his promises, they aren't new promises. Um, they, they are restatements of those five old promises. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Yep. Somewhat similar question. Would you say that the later um, bond if you will, with David and Kingdom, would you say that those supersede uh, earlier ones? Or? No. But, n- n- well, um, they, they nuance them rather than supersede them. Uh, I'm just looking to see which things I'm going to cover in, 
No, I'm not going to talk about this, so we'll, we'll talk about it now. Um, that is, the, 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 the concern, a concern to, for the people to be a blessing and for them to be a great nation and for them to have a land isn't undone um, or replaced by having a temple uh, and by the promise to David. But there is a sense in which it's kind of compromised. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's, it's Isaiah 55 that shows how it's compromised. Because once you, once you focus on... Once there is a covenant with David, then, then that has compromised the covenant with the whole people. Yeah, that's what I want to say. Um, th- there was never designed to be a guy who was the focus of everything like that, with whom God had this special relationship. God wanted to be in relationship with the whole people. Uh, so, but once you've got a king, and likewise, God, as, as God says in 2 Samuel 7, didn't want to be stuck in a particular place. Uh, and so the, the notions of um, blessing for the people, the land for the people, the people as a nation being important, are both compromised a little bit. There's a good side and a bad side to the promise, I'll always be there in the sanctuary, um, because it raises a question of whether, in what sense, God's always there in other places. Um, and there's a good and a bad side to, I'll always work through David, because, um, well, what does that say about the rest of us, and what about when the Davids are rotten, as they usually are? And so, um, in, when, when there are no Davids, one response that is characteristic of Jeremiah, for instance, is to, and, and of Ezekiel, is to say, well, one day there'll be a new David. Another response that you'll read in Isaiah 55 is very different. Here's Isaiah 55. It's the passage that begins, how everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And it goes on, uh, Incline your ear, come to me, listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I'm applying to you that relationship that I had with David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. There was David, who was a great, um, successful military figure, who won an empire, and who thereby gave testimony, as it were, in what he achieved to the power of Yahweh. I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander to the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, nations that do not know you shall run to you, because of Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. I've stopped working through a David. There isn't a David kind of figure who I'm working through now. I'm working through you all. It's, it's the, making, the covenant with David is replaced by a covenant with all of you. Instead of me working through David, I'm working through all of you. Now, I've, I've maybe exaggerated slightly the rather than uh, but, but that's the drift of the way Isaiah 55 works. And its implication is that, that God is going back behind the David covenant to how things were always supposed to be. When, they came out, when the people came out, came out of Egypt, God says to them, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, there isn't a king. I mean, if, if there's any kinging around here, you're the kingy guys. Uh, and so that them having a king was not only... Uh, not only meant that they were, when they asked for a king, they were not only compromising Yahweh's position as king, they were compromising their own position as the king's people, as the kingdom, by putting David in between them and God. And Isaiah 55 is saying, okay, now 
let's forget that idea. I'm, I'm, I'm entering into this, uh, rela- this, this covenant relationship with all of you, talking as if it's a new thing, when it's a going back to the way that th- the thing was supposed to be from the beginning. Yeah? Uh, well, yeah, and the similarity, and that, that's the similarity with Isaiah 55, because this is not conditional. The, Abraham conduct, the, the, the covenant commitment to Abraham uh, was a promise of God's. The, I'd rather put it in those terms than start talking conditional and conditional isn't necessarily very helpful. Um, uh, the covenant with, with Abraham was, was one in which God was promising to do certain things. The covenant with David is God promising to do certain things. The covenant in Isaiah 55 is God promising to do certain things. So, I mean, if, if, if Ezekiel's kind of reestablishing the covenant with the people as opposed to specifically with David... No, that's, that wasn't Ezekiel. That's Isaiah 55. Oh, Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah 55. Then why was it seen by Matthew and Luke as significant to tie Jesus still back to David? Well, because other, because, because other people like Jeremiah do uh, reaffirm a promise to David. So from now on, you've got two strands of thinking about the future which are uh, in tension with each other, but both have got some truth to them. It's typical theology, Bible, it's always complicated. It's not my fault. It's not even God's fault. It's just the way things are. That is, there are certain things, there are certain positive things which are declared by saying God has a special relationship with the people as a whole and works through the people as a whole. And there are certain other things which are uh, declared and made clear, important things, which are uh, expressed in the idea of God making a commitment to a particular line and working through a particular person. Uh, I mean, obviously, well, well, the first one, that is, God's relationship is with Israel, as God's relationship is with the church. That's obviously true, right? God works through Israel, God works through the church. But uh, as a matter of fact, the one through whom God brought about the redemption of the world was a particular person who was a descendant of David. So both both of these angles in Jeremiah and, and, and Isaiah, which I'm polarized, which I was polarizing uh, just now, are, are both there part both there within Scripture because they're but they're both saying significant things and they um, are uh, expressing both expressing aspects of um, the nature of the way that God uh, of God's concerns and the way that God works. A different lens. Uh, no, it's not a different lens. It's a different object that you're looking at a lens with. Or two, yeah. Okay, paragraph two on my section two on my sheet. It'll be a miracle if I get round, get down this, won't it? But we'll see. Who who knows what happens? Um, the prophets then are talking about prophecies, promises, um, and we expect to see them fulfilled. Uh, but the question is, what do we mean by a prophecy being fulfilled? Uh, is a prophecy being fulfilled uh, like the football schedule being fulfilled? Um, and where, for instance, if, if there's a game due to be played and uh, it's not been able to be played because it's too hot or too cold or too rainy or too snowy or whatever, then, at least with lots of um, kind of forms of sport anyway, you've got to play that game on some other occasion later on in the season, otherwise the programme won't be completed and you won't know who the champions are, Right? The, the, the fixture list um, has bound to be fulfilled, um, but, it, but, the, but, but particular fixtures may get postponed. 
And I think that's some people's uh, implicit understanding of the nature of prophecy. When God, God says something is going to happen, the fulfilment of the prophecy may not happen when you think it's going to happen, but it's bound to happen sometime because that's the very nature uh, of, the way that, of the way that prophecy works. And uh, people then who draw up a schedule of events that must happen before Christ's return um, are working with an image of the nature of prophecy a bit like that. But that stands in tension with my picture of the individual promises, prophecies in the Old Testament being particular embodiments of those five um, overarching fundamental promises. Because if, if the prophecies are all restatements of those same promises in different contexts in light of different situations, then you no longer have to worry about every detail in its pro- pro- in its, um, every prophecy in its detail being fulfilled. If it doesn't get fulfilled now, it's got to be fulfilled sometime. No. As, um, it's, it's much more like uh, that... Um, Jonah's threats about Nineveh being uh, destroyed uh, when Nineveh repents, that doesn't mean that the, the, the destruction, that doesn't in itself mean that the destruction of Nineveh is simply postponed. It's got to happen someday because someday God has said it. Um, on the contrary, that, that, pro- that, prof- that prophecy no longer needs to be fulfilled. But if Nineveh carries on behaving that way, then it won't be surprising if another time a guy whose name, name might be Nahum comes along and declares that Nineveh is going to be destroyed and this time it is destroyed, what's then being fulfilled is not Jonah's prophecy. Jonah's prophecy never would be fulfilled because it didn't need to be. What's now being fulfilled is Nahum's prophecy. Both of them are embodiments of not one of these five at the top but a similar kind of one of God's um, intention to see that uh, justice is done in the world and that wickedness is punished and so on. Um, But whether a particular embodiment of that prophecy receives fulfilment depends on the response it meets with and if it meets with the right kind of response then it never needs to be fulfilled so you don't have to collect the negative prophecies in the Old Testament that have never been fulfilled and say someday they've got to be of which the Edomite prophecy would be a good example because uh, Edom never was destroyed in the way that Obadiah says amusingly as I think I mentioned last time uh, what happened is the Edomites all got converted uh, or at least in the sense that, by New Testament times, the area that's covered by Edom uh, is an area that is Jewish. Um, and, and so, may, I, I, now I, don't, well, I don't know, I don't think we know, by what, well, I, I wonder if the expert, if the New Testament guys do know, or anybody does know, how the Edomites came to be. It may be that somebody knows something and I don't. I'll add that to, my, to the Samaritans. Let's see if I can find out. I'm going to have a busy time this weekend. Um, <laughs> it's too late to edit it to volume 3 the page proofs are already done uh, the prophecy uh, of Edom's um, destruction uh, is not fulfilled isn't that terrific you didn't want it to be fulfilled but you read it did you because you're too nice and so is God so, uh, so it evidently fulfilled its function by not being fulfilled. Thank you. Um, that prophecies are not a list of things, that, of things that God has decided will happen no matter what, and one day they will happen if they don't happen now. Or is prophecy like a weather forecast being fulfilled? Uh, when people uh, seek to prove that Christ is the Messiah by means uh, of quoting prophecies. It's kind of a bit like that. The point about the weather forecast is that it should be fulfilled. You test whether the weathermen are any good. 
or more, is prophecy more like, as I think it is, a promise or a warning being fulfilled? Um, like when you uh, say, uh, I'll take you to the, to the kids, I'll take you to the beach. Um, or saying that you're going to punish them for something. But if they, if they say, I don't want to go to the beach, beach is boring, I want to watch TV, you shrug your shoulders and say, okay. If they then tomorrow say, uh, can we go to the beach? And you say, no. Uh, and they say, but you said we could go to the beach. And you say, well, that was yesterday. I, I was free to go to the beach yesterday. I'm not free to take you to the beach today. But I might take you to the beach on Wednesday. So the whole process of saying what will happen, um, pro- of making promises, making offerings like that, uh, is um, its fulfilment is dependent upon the kind of response it meets. And you can't claim uh, yesterday's offer, yesterday's promise, yesterday's prophecy, um, the day after tomorrow. And in a similar way, uh, if the kids stopped doing whatever they were doing, um, and you don't have to punish them for what you, in the way that you said you would, that doesn't mean that that punishment is hanging over them, because Dad said he was going to punish us for that, so it's going to happen tomorrow if it doesn't happen today. Uh, on the other hand, if they do again what you were complaining about at the time, then they may well find that something rather like that happens to them. But the whole interrelationship of promise and warning and fulfilment is much more dynamic than what is often presupposed by people's understanding of promise, prophecy and fulfilment. Or fourthly, under number two, uh, is prophecy, is the fulfilment of prophecy more like a commitment being fulfilled? Um, and that seems to me to be true too. Uh, you, when you get married, you promise to share all your worldly goods with somebody else. Uh, and you uh, fulfill that, perhaps. Um, but that's uh, a different kind of notion um, from the one we often work with with prophecy. But when God is making um, promises, maybe that's a more useful model, lens, to use for looking at prophecy than, um, than the uh, football schedule uh, one or the weather forecast one. Third, number, paragraph three, uh, what does fulfillment look like um, within Scripture? Because if we look at what, the, what, what fulfillment looks like within Scripture, uh, it, uh, it might help us a bit further with this question of what the fulfillment of Ezekiel in the future might look like. Some of these passages we, I may have um, uh, mentioned to you before. Well, I have mentioned to you before. Um, there is, for instance, that declaration of God's to... Isaiah, that, that, that Isaiah's job uh, is to uh, make the people blind. Uh, along comes Jesus speaking parables, um, and they ask, the disciples ask Jesus why he's speaking parables, and he says, uh, uh, because my job is to make people blind. Um, and he quotes the Isaiah passage. Um, so he, he is doing what Isaiah said. Um, that's not the last time that passage surfaces uh, in the New Testament. Uh, at the end of Acts, when Paul is having a hard time uh, convincing some people in Rome about the kingdom of God and about Jesus, um, Paul says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed listen but never understand, you will indeed look but never perceive. 
and so on. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, there is Isaiah talking about his own ministry in certain words. Not, not giving a prophecy about something to happen in 8th century's time. There is Jesus um, saying, what Isaiah said has been fulfilled in my ministry. And there is Paul, who might have known that Jesus said that, saying, what Isaiah said is being fulfilled in my ministry. Um, you have a, 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 another example um, of the way in which, when God declares a promise, a prophecy, a warning... It's not something random, it's something that's an expression of principle in some way, and therefore it's not surprising if it can find uh, embodiment on a number of occasions. So it's quite possible for prophecies not to be fulfilled at all, and there's nothing to worry about. It's also quite possible for prophecies to be fulfilled several times, because the um, same principle that is being embodied in the prophecy the first time uh, is being re-embodied on subsequent occasions. Um, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20. He will come to Zion as Redeemer, to those in Jacob who turned from transgression, says the Lord. Well, that's obviously a prophecy about Jesus, isn't it? He's going to come to Zion as Redeemer, isn't he? I heard an Amen. And then it says Romans 9.29, and that's wrong. I wonder what that's supposed to say. Thank you. Well, that's not very different. I mean, that's not that's that's pretty different, isn't it? Oh, it does say. Uh, oh, I just say eleven twenty. Sorry, I jumped the lines. My, my, okay, thank you. Sorry. Um, yeah, Romans eleven twenty six. Um, when uh, the this extraordinary thing has happened, whereby uh, God has, whereby the rejection, the Jewish rejection of the Messiah, has um, led to a focus on Gentiles coming to um, know Jesus. Um, and then when the full number of Gentiles has come in, uh, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, Paul says, out of Zion will come the deliverer, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. You'd have thought that Isaiah 59 was about the first coming of Jesus. Paul uses it in Romans 11 to be about the second coming of Jesus. Um, then there's the one that does relate to Romans 9.29, um, where in Isaiah chapter 1... The people lament, uh, if Yahweh armies had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and come, become like Gomorrah. Um, and Paul says in, in Romans 9, uh, given that decimation of the, of the people of God in, in the sense that they haven't come to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, it is as Isaiah predicted. Has anybody got a Greek New Testament? That can tell me what, what the verb predict is there. Uh, well, if somebody, find, well um, see, if somebody can find that, would be useful. Pro, pro it's just pro-erican. Pro pro-erican. So that is, that's, exa that's exactly predict predicted. It's the Greek, thanks, it's the Greek equivalent of predicted. Sorry? Pro-lego. Pro-lego, yeah. Pro-lego to say pro-beforehand. Yeah, so, um, uh, so pre it is exactly predicted. So, so Isaiah says... 
Paul says Isaiah predicted his day. Um, and yet what Isaiah is doing is talking about his own day. Uh, you have again, you have the same, that same principle um, of individual prophecies being embodiments um, of some overarching purpose of God or overarching way of working on God's part, uh, which is expressed in the kind of chastisement of his people that they experienced in Isaiah's day, they've experienced again um, in, in Paul's day. Uh, you've got the same sort of thing going on. There the, Isaiah 7.14 and 9.1 and 2 are the passages about the virgin conceiving and about um, light dawning in darkness, where you can see, I've suggested to you, things going on in Isaiah's day that then uh, go on again in Jesus' day. And uh, Jeremiah 31 illustrates the point as well. I said to you on Monday that the promise of, of, of the of God's teaching being written on people's hearts that Jeremiah talks about is something you can see going on in the community after the exile when the restored community in Ezra and Nehemiah's day has got the teaching of God um, uh, written on its hearts in a way that the, that the community earlier never did have. Uh, but you can see that sort of thing happening again uh, in, through Jesus and you can see Paul in Romans expecting it to happen again at the end. And one of the things that illustrates, as we've seen with some earlier, uh, in, in looking at the Matthew prophecies earlier on, that fulfilment may have nothing to do with the original meaning of a text. Um, and a passage that helped me to clarify my thinking on that uh, is this one in John chapter 11, where Caiaphas, um, when they're discussing what to do about Jesus, says, you know nothing at all to the, um, the uh, Jewish leaders, you do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. And John comments, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. He did not say this on his own, says John. Well, he did. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't manipulated by God or hypnotized by God. Those words didn't come out of his mouth, and Caiaphas didn't say afterwards, where did that come from? Uh, Caiaphas knew what he was doing. It was, a, it was, it was he thought, an astute uh, political comment. It is expedient for one man to die for the people. But at another level, John knows that those words have got, are extraordinary. They are prophetic. So, um, John says, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation. He's not thinking he's doing that at all. He means something quite different. But in light of what happened, you can see extraordinary significance um, and a purpose of God in the words that um, Caiaphas uttered. And um, maybe it helps us understand a bit what then fulfilment uh, means in light of all that way of talking about prophecy and fulfilment that's, that seems very strange given our understanding of what prophecy and fulfilment ought to be uh, when uh, you reflect on something I think I mentioned again the other week that the verb to f to f that's translated fulfill most commonly um, is the word that simply means to fill. Uh, and so what happens with prophecies is that they get filled out. Um, they get filled up by the things that happened. Um, there's only a small amount to the prophecy, but when the event happens, it's like the cup being filled up. Because the, the, the event that happens um, uh, in New Testament times adds, adds things to the prophecy that wasn't there before. John 
is, as it were, is in a position to add to the content of Caiaphas' prophecy, or the events add to its content in talking about it being fulfilled. Um, Paragraph 4. The assumption uh, of the late great planet Earth guys, or my pastor when I was a teenager talking about the the Pharaoh taking his river unto himself, is that the things these prophets have got to say don't relate to their own day, but they relate to things that are going to happen long afterwards. Uh, It's really rather amusing that Ezekiel specifically denies that that's the case. In a a different sort of sense, the people that Ezekiel was ministering to believed that uh, or complained that the kind of things that Ezekiel said uh, never received fulfilment um, in the same way as people complained about Jeremiah. Um, And uh, if there is a hardship that Ezekiel... if, if Ezekiel, If God is tough with Ezekiel in the same way as God is tough with Jeremiah... It's actually in making him live with that. Living with that, having to keep, as Jeremiah puts it, having to keep generating these words um, of uh, declaring that God is going to bring punishment, um, and it never happens. So, Ezekiel 12, 21, The word of Yahweh came to me. Mortal, what is this proverb of yours about the land of Israel, which says, The days are prolonged and every vision comes to nothing? Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will put an end to this proverb, and they shall use it no more as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, The days are near, and the fulfilment of every vision. For there shall no longer be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel, but I, Yahweh, will speak the word that I speak, and it will be fulfilled, it will no longer be delayed. But in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and fulfil it, says the Lord Yahweh. The word of Yahweh came to me, Mortal, the house of Israel is saying, The vision that he sees is for many years ahead, say for 1948, or 1959, or 2011. He prophesies for distant times. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, none of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be fulfilled, says the Lord Yahweh. The prophet's account of their calling suggests that their calling is to minister to God's word to the people amongst whom they lived. These editors of the prophetic books who tell you at the beginning um, uh, how the books came into existence and uh, who was the father of the prophet um, make that clear. Uh, Ezekiel, as I said earlier, is an exception because he writes his own introduction. But somebody like Jeremiah doesn't. The book begins, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign, came also in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now why does the editor tell you that? Well, one reason is, that you'll only, one implication at least is, you'll only understand these prophecies of Jeremiah or Ezekiel or whoever, when you understand them as given in those contexts, because that's what they relate to. Paragraph 5. When the prophets... Talking does involve talking about future events. These might be events that were imminent and therefore directly relevant to their hearers. Or they might be events that turned out to be far distant, 
the final day of the Lord. And they may, somebody again in the posting asked me to talk about the day of the Lord again, the, the notion of the day of the Lord can apply in both those senses and maybe when the prophet talks about the day of the Lord he doesn't know which, in which sense he's talking about it. Um, that is, uh, the, the, day of the, Lord is, the day of the Lord is hanging over these people to whom Ezekiel is ministering in, between 593 and 587. The day of the Lord is the fall of Jerusalem. It's going to be the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem is going to be the day of the Lord. Lamentation says, the day of the Lord has arrived. Or as Ezekiel puts it, the end has come upon my people Israel. Um, so they are imminent events. Uh, the, the imminent event can be the day of the Lord. But then the prophets also talk, talk about in that day, and they are evidently aware that they're not talking about their own day, they're talking about a day in the future. Uh, and it's a bit like us thinking in terms, or the New Testament thinking in terms of the second coming of Christ, which may be a far-off event, but it's an event which is directly significant for the people who are living at the moment, because they, they need to live in light of the fact that the day of Yahweh is coming. When these are that kind of far-off event, the prophets speak of them because of the way they relate to their hearers, as when Paul speaks about Jesus' future coming to people in his own day. And they use language that applies to the people of their day. Um, my um, boss once uh, preaching in our seminary uh, a million years ago uh, on Advent Sunday talking about the second coming of Christ said well, there are all sorts of things we don't know about the second coming we don't know the date we don't know exactly what will happen and so on but this we know the trumpet will sound and the naughty Old Testament guy sitting next to me and I said to each other no it was a New Testament guy and I sitting next to each other looked at each other and said well no that's one thing we don't know because the trumpet sounding is exactly the sensible way to herald the arrival of Jesus in AD 65. It would be a very stupid way to herald the arrival of Jesus in 2009 AD, wouldn't it? What, what it you'll read all about it on the internet. Everybody will be twittering about it, uh, is, is, what, is what to say now. But who knows what, should, what will need to be said in 2015? It'll, it, you know, the technology will have moved on leaps and bounds. Exactly. That's the, the point about the imagery is to communicate with the people. It, it is, well, it's, it's two, two, there's two things there. It's what will actually happen is what's appropriate in the context. So the trumpet is appropriate in AD 60 and uh, Facebook is appropriate now. Uh, but, but also the reality, likewise, the, but the reality, if it actually happens, sorry, I've said that twice, haven't I? If it actually happens, it will involve trumpets or the internet but also in order to communicate. It will involve talking about trumpets or talking about the internet. Uh, but but to, uh, to try to, to reckon that the way that God expresses those promises in the terms of a certain day are the way they will be fulfilled uh, in a wholly other day is to miss the point about the nature of the way that God is seeking to communicate with people. I don't understand, so ask me afterwards, will you? Because I don't, I don't get you, so ask me afterwards. Um, f 
things then that, that Ezekiel say, is saying are things that, that will be fulfilled, uh, so, that, that can be fulfilled um, now, but you, but you have to allow for the difference, the appropriate forms of communication um, and, uh, and, and the way in which things will be fulfilled in order to and, and see that what the fulfillment will look like may well be quite different from what the words originally said. Uh, so that fits then with number six. When the prophets talk about a coming deliverer, they do that in terms of what it will look like if it happens tomorrow. And that's because they are reaffirming a promise they're not predicting a far-off event. When Jesus comes as deliverer, or when Jesus will do so at the end, he fulfills the underlying promise, not the literal prediction. And or he fulfills um, the prediction, but he does, though, does so in a reinterpreted sense. In the same way, when God fulfills promises for the Jewish people today, that's a matter of fulfilling an underlying commitment, not fulfilling a mere literal prediction. Um, that is, then, God is committed to the Jewish people's being a blessing, being in relationship with God, knowing increase, having a land, things that go back to Abraham, uh, being a model for the world, um, and, uh, and those things still apply to the Jewish people. But to seek to, to reckon that individual things that God says in Old Testament times uh, are fulfilled in 1948 or 1967 or will be fulfilled in 2015 is to miss the point about the nature of God speaking to his people in those Old Testament contexts. The secondary nature of um, David and Temple uh, promises um, might, might mean that well, in particular, uh, one wouldn't expect, in connection with Jesus' coming, to have a rebuilding of the temple. Uh, because that, that doesn't make a lot of sense in light of Jesus' coming and the kind of, thing he says, the kind of things he says about temple. Um, and, uh, and, and that uh, fits with the, what I've described as the kind of secondary nature of the promise about temple. It's the... Um, and the same thing is true about the state. That is, the founding of the Israeli state is not something which one should see as an expression of God's overarching promises because the idea of being a kingdom like the nations was not part of God's original plan. That the Jewish people should be free to enjoy the land, preferably in the company of, the, uh, of other children of Abraham, fits with God's promise. That the um, Jewish people should be the Israeli state is something quite different. Um, and in my opinion, the Israeli state is theologically not significant. It's politically very significant. Maybe it's um, allowing for human weakness, something that, that uh, is, is something God's happy to allow to his people. But it's not in itself something that's required by God's promises in a way that the Jewish people's freedom to live in the land uh, is, re is required by God's promises. Finally, of course God's promises are not fulfilled in a way that ignores moral questions. That was true from the beginning when God said to Abraham, I'd like to live you this, give you this land, but you're going to have to wait 400 years because the Canaanites haven't done enough yet to deserve to be thrown out of it. Uh, and therefore, when you think about relationships between the Israelis and Palestinians, uh, you have to uh, allow... You, you can't assume that promises of God about Jews being free to live in the land uh, override 
the um, position of people who've been living in the land for a long time who don't deserve to be thrown out of it. Uh, and uh, it's very hard for Christians to hold on to both of those facts. So Christians are either people who um, are very sympathetic to God's promises to the Jewish people uh, and wish the Palestinians would go away, or people who are so enraged at the uh, wicked things that have been done to the Palestinians that they no longer take God's promises to the Jewish people seriously. Uh, and as usual, when you simplify down the complexity uh, of, what, of what the scriptures say, say, you end up in heresy. And if you've fallen off the log with regard to in either, you can fall off the log in either of those ways. And it kind of makes your life easier. Um, but the agony, the th- there's a theological agony that goes alongside the agony of two peoples being attached to that same lang- land. And we have to hold on to the theological agony, I suggest. Uh, okay, talk to, to each other for two or three minutes about those issues about promise and fulfilment and what you think about Israel and the land and that kind of stuff. So, I'm 
is kind of, that is filled. That is, that is maybe superseded. But the other Four minutes. Have you had four minutes? Okay, okay. Uh, I want to say one, two things uh, about Nahum and Obadiah in response to the postings. And I'll do that first, but if, I, uh, if there's time left at the end, then I can, if there's things you want to say about that stuff, then we'll do it. Um, I've um, indicated some things about Nahum and Obadiah in, in, in talking earlier on. Um, I, I loved, where's Martin Rodriguez? A great remark you made. Uh, I think Nahum and Jonah would have been good friends, don't you? Um, I wasn't quite sure what it meant, but I thought it was a great <laughs> remark. Uh, <laughs> and they, both, they both said the same thing. Now, uh, now other people were contrasting Nahum and, um, and Jonah, as if Jonah was being nice to, to Nineveh and Nahum was being nasty. No. The, uh, as, and, and a lot of people talked as if Jonah was saying to the Ninevites, now you guys need to repent. Jonah never said any such thing. Jonah said exactly the same as Nahum did. But the Ninevites knew how to respond. The fact that Nahum doesn't say, so you Ninevites had better, better repent, doesn't mean that Nahum uh, is ruling out the possibility of them repenting. That, that, you see, the, it's, just, it's the way the rhetoric works, is by threatening people uh, uh, to see whether that draws repentance from them. Uh, another thing to notice, uh, what somebody asked, well, what's Nahum's message to Judah? then one answer is, well, it's the good news that the great oppressor is going to be put down. But there's another thing that you need to notice about the way that Nahum works. The modern translations, uh, the, Nahum actually uses the word Nineveh not very often. He just talks about you. Um, and the modern translations add the word Nineveh quite a lot in order to help you understand. Uh, but it might help you to misunderstand. Because what it means is that the, that the prophecy operates much more at a level of principle of what is God is doing with the wicked people. And therefore, if you're Judah, it doesn't keep saying to you, I'm talking about Nineveh. It's talking about the wicked city. And therefore, you have to ask yourself, are we the wicked city? It works much more subtly um, in, uh, than, than the translations uh, make it work. Um, Uh, somebody asked if Nahum and Jonah were in the same time frame. And the answer is they couldn't actually have been friends because um, Jonah would have needed to be about 100 and something uh, in order to um, be a friend of Nahum's because uh, the Jonah, Jonah story comes in 2 Kings chapter 14. 
Um, and the period is about 760, something like that, when um, uh, when King Jeroboam uh, restored the border of Israel from Libel Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, According to the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gathepha. For Yahweh saw that the distress of Israel was very bitter. There is no one left bond or free, no one to help Israel. But Yahweh had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. That's 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, and so you, you can see there how Jonah is a prophet who's given words of promise. Um, to Israel and that's why Jonah is an appropriate person to think of bringing negative words to Nineveh and not liking uh, the fact that the Ninevites repent because Jonah likes giving good words to Judah and doesn't like, give, doesn't like the idea that God will be nice uh, to the Ninevites um, but uh, uh, the, so the message of Nahum uh, is very similar in that sense they could have been friends but they're actually, he's actually living a hundred years or so later on uh, and if there's any factuality to the Jonah story, then, the, then it certainly is the case that Nineveh wasn't destroyed in Jonah's day. Uh, but uh, Nineveh was destroyed in Nahum's day, uh, and that presumably is uh, part of the reason why uh, Nahum is in the Bible, because, wow, look, God's just done exactly what Nahum said he was going to do. Um, Nahum is one of the uh, late, well with Obadiah, and I think this is one of the reasons why I was thinking that question: Why are we doing these prophets in a silly order? I think it's not silly very often. It's only putting Nahum and Obadiah is a bit um, adventurous, but they have in common that that's what they have in common: uh, this um, declaration of judgment uh, of, of, of a very fierce kind, and nothing else. No, no critique of Judah, simply declaration of judgment on a foreign people, and consequently they are the two. Prophets the two, uh, who are most disliked um, by modern Western readers. Um, they've been seen as nationalist prophets, rather like Hananiah. Um, they don't appear in church lectionaries. You never read them in church. Uh, and this is both wise and unwise. Because uh, a book like Nahum uh, directly addresses Western imperial powers, uh, like Britain and the United States. Uh, which have reason to uh, fear the nationalism of less powerful peoples um, who can do little about their subservience uh, but can hope and pray. Uh, it's often the, the case, uh, and we wouldn't like Nahum uh, because uh, it's very scary for us, it's often the case that people in power uh, want to urge moderation and peacefulness and cooperation on people who are not in power. The idea of Jesus being a peacemaker is much, it's very popular amongst powerful people. Uh, and, uh, and Nahum uh, doesn't urge rebellion on Judah, but, but Nahum does reckon that there needs to happen uh, in Judah what a liberation theologian would call the process of conscientization. Um, that is, uh, usually imperial powers make little powers think that they could never be anything different. Uh, there's a process of conscientization needs to happen to Judah, whereby this colonized power um, can cut the imperial power down in its thinking. 
Yahweh is going to cut the imperial power down politically, uh, but already Yahweh wants to cut the imperial power down in the thinking of little Judah. So what Nahum is declaring is um, the destiny of imperial powers. And the fact that he doesn't name them very often is also scary for us. Um, of course, Western readers, uh, again, have reckoned that Nahum's message is hard to reconcile with Jesus' message of peace, because that message of peace suits us. But Jesus also, as I've often pointed out to you, speaks a lot about God's violent judgment. The key assumption that Nahum shares with other prophets is that Yahweh works through the violence of, na- of nations like the Babylonians and the Medes. And that's a consistent feature of Yahweh's involvement in the world. Somebody in their posting very interestingly suggested that the trouble with Nahum is you could use it as a justification of a just war. No, you couldn't, because there's nothing just about the way that these Babylonians go about exercising war. It contradicts most of the criteria for just war. But even if it did, um, then a modern power that recognised it was, that reckoned it was trying to do the kind of thing um, that one of these powers was doing is on its way itself towards um, disaster. Um, that's, the, that's the point. Uh, there's no encouragement in Nahum or anywhere else to Judah to do, to, 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 to do anything, uh, to make war. There's simply a declaration that, that the Babylonians are people who do make war and God, uh, the Assyrians are people who do make, uh, do make war and God is going to use the Babylonians to put them down. But God will then use the Persians to put the Babylonians down. Uh, if we don't reckon that God um, it would do that kind of thing, with Assyria and Babylon and Persia. Uh, And uh, then we don't think that God is involved in the rise and fall of empires. Well, again, that suits us, because it means we can do what we like. Uh, But it's also a bit scary if God is not involved in the world in that way. Nahum's God is a God of love who doesn't leave people under the sway of violent oppressors forever. So major powers have to be wary of the declarations of Nahum uh, coming to provide them with ideological support for their actions in the world. They, make, they then make themselves even more open to critique. Uh, but Nahum provides less powerful peoples with no encouragement to attack their overlords. There's no encouragement here to um, the Israelites to, to reckon that they can put the Assyrians or the Babylonians down. What Nahum does is provide Judah with hope that God will not leave them under this domination forever. What I think I've been presupposing just then is that the contents of Nahum come from a colonial context. Uh, That is, Judah is under the control of the empire. By the time Nahum um, comes to be a a document, a writing, which the community recognises and, and, and as it were, puts into scripture, that will be appeared later on, which is literally a post-colonial moment. Though that is when the Assyrians have been put down, though it will turn out to be a moment in between two empires because the Babylonians are soon going to take over. Um, there is uh, a significant literary movement, uh, particularly um, in the former British Empire and amongst um, people who are the descendants of, um, uh, of people who lived in British colonies within Britain itself but also in other parts of the post-colonial world, uh, a significant um, post-colonial movement and post-colonial literature. Um, and one of, the key, um, one of the key people in the development of that is a guy called Salomon Rushdie, 
uh, who is an, a novelist, uh, who wrote a piece in the London Times 20 years ago called The Empire Writes Back. Because um, what's happening in, this po- in post-colonial literature uh, in our world is the empire writing back, the British colonies writing ba- back about uh, themselves and Britain and their relationship with them. Um, in post-colonial uh, discussion, it's often talked about in terms of uh, the empire writing back to the centre. That is, somebody like Rushdie, who comes from the Indian subcontinent, is writing back to the former centre of the empire. Nahum is an example of the empire writing back. That is, it, it's a clone, Nahum comes is a piece of colonial writing. Nahum, Nahum, though, isn't writing back to the centre. That is, this is, not a, this is not a document that will go to Assyria. This is a document for local consumption in Jerusalem. This is the empire writing for itself. The book reflects the classic colonial experiences of invasion and powerlessness and oppression. Um, but it, it insists on its own way of looking at itself. It won't look at itself the way the empire wants to look at it, the, the way the imperial power wants it to look at itself. So Nahum has been described as divinely inspired resistance literature. And uh, a South African scholar called uh, uh, Willie Vessels uh, uh, compared it with anti-apartheid literature in South Africa. It's a really strange thing about Nahum that it is so poetic. It's some of the most magnificent poetry in the Old Testament. In an odd kind of way, uh, that contributes to its being resistance literature. Powerful poetry often emerges from oppressed societies. The kind of hyperbole, exaggeration that's utilised in describing Yahweh and describing the fate of Assyria creates before the imagination of the Judean people a different world from the, one, from the world that people experience at the moment and it promises that that world will become reality. That's how it's God's word to it. Goodbye! Come back on Monday! <laughs>